Over. This begins our understanding that the successful 12-step call is the one I leave sober. Also, how do I stay sober? Carry the message. Carry the message. When I'm in trouble, I need to find another drunk and spend some time there, not to fix the other drunk, but to stay sober. This is creative selfishness. So now Bill's got six months. Bill, wanted, Bill always wanted to make a billion dollars and he was full of energy and life and charm and, and schmooze, you know, a businessman, a, a maker of deals. He could, he could spin an idea and help you invest in it. He always wanted to be a cigar-smoking guy on Wall Street. Always, always, always. Well, he thought he'd go to Akron, Ohio and make some money. It's 1935, everything's a mess, but there's something in Akron, it's not that far away, I'll do some investigating, I'll make a lot of money, says Bill. His version of it is in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Years ago in 1935, one of our number, namely me, He's very anonymous. Made a journey to a certain western city. Now, if you're a New Yorker, Akron, Ohio is a western city. Remember how ge geographically challenged these people are. Ohio, door to the west. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. He didn't make money. People were mad at him. The deal fell through. Had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. See, I need to make a lot of money now. I need to be financially secure. I need to get set on my feet. I really need this job. But his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy, and you can do that in a weekend. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke, still physically weak and sober, but a few months, six months. He saw that his predicament was dangerous, he wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? How do I find somebody? One dismal afternoon, he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was going to be paid. Bill, get a job. Well, I'm looking for work. Get any job. You know, McDonald's is hiring, but I'm a college graduate. McDonald's is hiring. At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he would find companionship and release a bar. Now, I love bars. I loved going into bars. I didn't like fancy bars. I liked awful bars. 
I like sawdust on the floor bars. I like cigarette smoky bars. I like the little vomit in the bathroom bars. I mean, I like those kinds of places. There was a bar in downtown L.A. where there's occasional knifings. I just thought that added a certain je ne sais quoi, you know, to the whole thing. <laughs> Lovely bar. Companionship, charming people. Oh, drinkers, smokers, hooray. I love you folks. Unless he took some drinks, a couple of drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance, ask for money, scrape an acquaintance, and we'd have a lonely weekend. Of course he couldn't drink, but why not sit at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him? I mean, the mind is going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He was on thin ice. He was on thin ice. What about this? What about that? Now, what has he learned? What he's learned is that if he's very thirsty and Bill at six months sober gets thirsty, he's had that room full of God and six months later, Bill's thirsty. He's got to find a drunk to talk to. He, he, Bill's gone to Oxford group movements. Oxford group, uh, it's a big study. You can look at the Oxford group. These are folks who in the early 1900s, try to organize to help Christians live Christian lives. They're kind of evangelical. They're very Protestant. They want to perk up their religious sensibility. They want to be scripture-based and community-based. They want to rediscover the, the joy of first-century Christianity. Their leader is a guy named Frank Buckman, who is an ordained Lutheran pastor. And he looks around America 1900 and says, this is disgusting. You can imagine how he'd handle today. You know, it'd be so much worse. But in the America of Teddy Roosevelt, he found, you know, full of corruption and evil. So he, in the Presbyterian churches, the Episcopal churches, the Methodist churches, there was this kind of movement called the Oxford Group. It's also sometimes called muscular Christianity. Uh, men's stuff, uh, men's, uh, um, um, the promise keepers is very similar to it. Uh, up with people was, was one of the verge, all these extremely happy young people. Um, I know some up with people, uh, folks who are sober today, and they said they have never smiled more in their lives than when they were with, up with people. Look really happy all the time. It's exhausting. Anyway, Bill, Bill has been to meetings and he knows if he calls uh, uh, a clergyman, they're probably going to know something about drunk. So he calls an Episcopal clergyman and he says, I'm a rum hound from New York and I need to talk to a drunk. And uh, phone call, phone call, phone call, Henrietta Cyberling. Henrietta Cyberling knows this physician. And so Bill and Bob meet. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a certain resident of the town who, though formally able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. This is Bill's hit on Dr. Bob. It was the usual situation, home in jeopardy, 
wife ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and standing damaged. It was the usual situation. He had a desperate desire to stop but saw no way out, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape, painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be an alcoholic. Chronic illness, obsession of the body, uh, obsession of the mind, allergy of the body. And then they make a connection. Now, when Bill and Bob meet, I don't think Bill is trying to get Dr. Bob sober. I think Bill is trying to stay sober himself. So it's clean. He's not trying to manipulate Bob. It's clean. And Dr. Bob is so amazed at trying to not be manipulated that he can hear him. What we've learned, if you're sensitive, like so many of us are sensitive, you can't scare us. And you can't shame us. And you can't manipulate us. But if you share freely, we can listen. And that's what happened. He could hear him. Being intrigued, he invited our friend to his home sometime later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender. For him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw that he would have to face his problem squarely and that God might give him mastery. One morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well-received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in this line of business, namely a doctor. At midnight, he came home exhausted but very happy. He has not had a drink since. As we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community. So that's Bill's version of Dr. Bob. Now, now what do they do? This, by the way, is the birth of Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't date ourselves from when Bill got sober. We date ourselves from when Dr. Bob got sober because a community is founded. That's the deal. AA doesn't exist in isolation. Now, these two guys are sober. Now what happens? They have to find someone else to talk to. Not so much to get that person sober, but to stay sober themselves. Life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves, one of which was this. Lois calls Bill and says, Bill, are you ever coming home? Is this marriage going to go anywhere? Well, Bill had to make some decisions. Bob is his whole support. Do I dare go back to New York where all I know is chaos? Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw they must keep spiritually active. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. Well, again, this is Bill writing. 
They did not call up the head nurse. Dr. Bob called up the head nurse. But Bill has a little problem with ego, you know, so they called up the head nurse. Can you imagine a nurse saying, and your name is Bill who? You know? But Dr. Smith, she'd listen to. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. I was thinking of getting some buttons made with first-class alcoholic prospect on them, but there are places you could not wear those, I suspect, huh? She replied, yes, we've got a corker. A corker. He's just beaten up a couple of nurses. Goes off his head completely when he's drinking. But he's a grand chap when he's sober. Though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. So he hasn't been that much of a grand chap. Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town, but just now we've got him strapped down tight. Now, sociologically, the stockbroker is getting sober, the doctor is getting sober, and the lawyer is getting sober. It's middle-class America getting sober. Very interesting. Then Bill writes, here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. Now notice this. AA has been in exist for, existence for three weeks. And already they're concerned about the newcomers. Bill, when you and I got sober, we had a better quality of alcoholic. <laughs> These new people coming in are disgusting. And we're very concerned. It's ruining the fellowship. And, you know, we want to protect what we have and make sure that few, but we want to keep out the trash. And they're concerned about the trash even in 1935. There are some meetings that are always concerned about the trash. Said one of the friends, Bob, put him in a private room and we'll be down. So what, they're learning how to do this. And they're learning how to do it by doing it. Bob and Bill, they have their first pigeon, their first sponsee, their first real alcoholic other than themselves. Two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the strangers beside his bed. Who are you fellows and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. So he's no virgin. He's not naive. He has no hope. He has no expectation. It's bleak. I was always in a ward before with the other drunks and I expect to be there again. Who are you guys? Said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. Hope, yeah, and, we've, and it's worked on the both of us. <laughs> You're number three. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, Oh, but that's no use. 
Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. Step one. Powerless. Unmanageable. Fun, fun plus problems. Problems. Step one is not a fun step. When I got sober back when Mr. Ford was president, um, I would bump into people who called themselves two-steppers. They liked steps one and twelve. They didn't like two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They liked one and twelve. They thought the, the, the middle steps were too religious or too much hard work or too much something, but they didn't like them. But they would do one and twelve. Step one, we're miserable. Step twelve, join us. <laughs> and then they'd wonder why people didn't come back. We're having a We're all dying. See you next week. <laughs> well, some people like that, but some really don't. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences. Tell your story. Over and over, he would say, that's me, that's me, I drink like that. He's identifying. There is grace at work here. He's identifying. The man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered. Alcohol's toxic. How it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps the mind. It affects the way we think. Synapses and parts of the brain are so affected by so much alcohol. There is brain damage. And if something is wired and goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, it gets used to going like that. Part of recovery is rewiring the brain. Learning some new behavior. Because the old behavior is so self-destructive. We have to do things differently. We have to start changing so many things. It's not enough to just not drink. We have to change the way we talk and the way we interact and the way we feel and the way we behave. I have a new sponsee. Uh, I was mentioning this to Dave uh, yesterday. He's 27 years old, and he's a, a gangbanger from Modesto. He's done a lot of time in jail, and he's covered with tattoos, and he's um, uh, been on probation since he was 19 years old. I mean, this guy has been in trouble a lot. But he's clean and sober, and he's going to meetings, and he's doing drunk driving classes, and he's got a job, and he's paying off debts. He's going to come to San Antonio. This is very exciting. Anyway, none of that's the point. The point is, I gave him that little talk I just gave you. Everything has to change. The way we react, the way we do things. Something happens, our first tendency is to run or lie. Don't do that. Stay and tell the truth. Um, you want to drink, you want to use, make a phone call. 
you're upset and you make a phone call. You start make, he's called me upset. He, we learn, the brain starts to be reprogrammed. So I told him, Larry, you have to change everything. And he's quiet for a while. I'm driving somewhere. And he says, I'm hanging out with an old white guy. I'm changing a lot. <laughs> and, he's, and then he laughed, you know, absolutely. We start doing things differently. Not just that. I have to be encouraged to keep doing things differently. Because I get into habits and ruts that aren't always helpful. I have to keep that change going. So anyway, they hook up with AA member number three. And they start developing a way of proceeding, a way of handling other alcoholics. Uh, they wonder about having hospitals, having alcoholics come into hospitals. This was a brand new thing. In the 1920s and the 1930s, and in most hospitals in the 1940s, alcoholics were not welcomed. The common understanding among educated people, doctors, nurses, was that alcoholics were bad people. We were weak people. We were moral degenerates. That's how some churches still think of us. Doctors would not treat alcoholics. Hospitals would not let alcoholics in. Dr. Bob stays in Akron. And he has a fantasy, an idea, an imagination of getting some kind of a hospital-based program for alcoholics. He goes up to St. Thomas Hospital. He's one of the doctors who's worked there. And he spots one of the sisters who is the admissions officer. Her name was Sister Ignatia. Now, Ignatia was an Irish lady, and she was very tiny. And these were the days when, when nuns dressed in hundreds of pounds of clothing, um, even in the heat like this, can you imagine? And uh, Sister Ignatia was um, uh, high-strung and a musician. Is that repetitive? Um, she was a high-strung artistic musician, uh, and she taught kids, but not that well. And when she was a young woman, she had a complete nervous breakdown. And the sisters in her community said, she's not able to teach kids anymore. It's dangerous for her. It's dangerous for them. That's just not good. What else? Now, a lot of the sisters in her community were also nurses. But they said, she's too old to learn how to be a nurse. So, but she needs a job. You know, she's got to do something. Let's put her someplace where she won't do much harm. And they put her in the, as admissions officer at St. Thomas Hospital. So she's in charge of patients coming in and the bed count. She can do that. She's not dumb. Dr. Bob senses something with her. And he goes up to her and he says, Sister, in, 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 in the whispering voice, you know, Sister Ignatia, uh, I'd like a room for a bed for an alcoholic here. I, I want to have a bed where we can have alcoholics come and dry out and get well and, and we don't have to tell anyone about this. It's just you and me. Now, Sister Ignatia was an Irish lady, and one of the things about Irish people is many of them are always against the government. 
They're always ready to conspire. So if you use the right tone of voice, the Irish will follow right along with you. And he heard that conspirator. And she, oh, well, her first response, though, was, we don't have alcoholics here, Dr. Bob, because they're garbage. I mean, they disrupt things. They run around the halls. They pee inappropriately. We don't want them in our hospital. Nice hospitals don't have them. And Dr. Bob comes out of the alcoholic closet, and he says to her, Sister Ignatia, I'm one of them. And I'll be the doctor. Well, she gets very excited. Um, and she finds a room. And it's the room they put all the dead flowers in. And she measures it. And one bed fits in there. So that became the first alcohol detox place. And then, of course, more than one alcoholic shows up. And at this time, 1936, 37, 38, it's all men who go to the hospitals. Women were left to die at home. Um, so you have a couple of alcoholics around, and Ignatia worked out a system where the alcoholics detoxing would be rotated so that they would never meet the doctors and nurses on rotation. If you, it's kind of like the Marx Brothers at the hospital. The beds are being moved around because they don't want the others to know because this is still a secret. And then it does become public, and St. Thomas Hospital becomes one of the first places to uh, get an alcohol detox ward going, and it's one of the first places that welcomed in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Ignatia loved alcoholic men, and she got all the wives together and said to them, Ladies, you should try a lot harder to make your husbands happy. Because Ignatia had been listening to the alcoholic men. And the wives sat her down and said, Sister Ignatia, we'd like to tell you the other half of the story. And she was in, she becomes one of the great founders and supporters of Al Anon family groups in the central part of the country. And when she goes to Cleveland to work at another hospital, she'll be one of the big founders of Al-Anon there and Sister Ignatia. After Dr. Bob died, Sister Ignatia was one of the few around who remember the very, very early days. And when Bill Wilson would remember things differently, she'd call him on it. And she would say, Bill, that's very interesting, but I was there and that's not the way it happened. The way it happened was A, B, and C. Because Bill could be a very creative teller of stories. Sister Ignatia. And she and Dr. Bob worked out a treatment program where it was a six-day program. You'd come in, you'd detox, you would be talked to, people would be around you, you would be encouraged to pray and meditate. You would leave the hospital on day number six, restored to some kind of sanity. And on the way out the door, Ignatia would say to you, now, tonight another sick person's going to be in this bed. I want you back here tomorrow morning to talk to the sixth person because you have six days sober. And I want you to share that with the guy that has none. And they kind of begin a program of uh, aftercare. And what you have to do, of course, to stay sober is tell your story and carry the message and tell your story 
and carry the message. She's a great friend of the program. And uh, there's a biography of her by Mary Dara called Sister Ignatia, the Angel of Alcoholics Anonymous. She was a great friend of Dr. Bob's for a long time. One of the first women who gets sober is Marty Mann. And Marty Mann is a Philadelphia society lady. And Marty Mann, she was real tough and she was real smart. And she didn't put up with fools easily. So you're always in conflict with somebody if you're like that. Bill talks about a lot of us, like, a lot of us want to live by self-propulsion. But so does everybody else, and so there's collisions all over the place. This is in Bill's discussion of step three. Uh, Marty Mann was a lot like that, and she finally gets sober. She's the first woman, not the first woman to come to meetings, but the first woman who stays sober. And she, after a little bit of time in the program, develops the National Council on Alcoholism. Going professional. People are dying because they don't know about alcoholism. When I first started paying attention to the Al-Anon family groups, one of the women I listened to on, on I didn't meet her, but there was a cassette tape of Blanche uh, Miller, Blanche Devonport Miller, Blanche D at that time. And Blanche was an English teacher. Blanche was a Southern lady. She grew up in Northern Florida, and they'd been there for generations. They, she said, we were not tourists. And whenever she behaved badly, her mother would say to her, don't act like a tourist, you know, because that was bad behavior. And Blanche grew up to be a very good little girl. And her father was a bad drunk, and they were desperately poor. Lots of crazy in the family. And Blanche wants to go to college, and no one in the family had been to college. And uh, they thought, you know, that was kind of like opening the doors to Satan's hell. And... Uh, they wouldn't pay for it. Blanche had to pay her way through Baylor University. And Baylor is kind of a big Baptist convent, if you know the truth must be told. Lots of rules and regulations. And the way Blanche protected herself, she, she didn't want to marry an alcoholic. She's seen alcoholics. Nothing to do with an alcoholic boy, nothing with an alcoholic family. She would not date boys who drank. And whenever she met a boy in some kind of social situation, she did that famous Al-Anon sniff, you know? You're just kind of smelling for beer or vodka. You know? Well, she met Charles, and Charles was handsome and cute and, and suave. And he had never had a drink, and so they got married, and then he had his first drink. And, of course, desperately alcoholic. And they had a couple of kids, and, and Blanche tells her own story brilliantly. Her mother told her, if you go to school in Texas, you're probably going to marry a Texan. Because, now how do they, she phrases very cleverly, they don't transplant. You know, you're going to meet a boy, and he's a Texan, and, and they, Texans don't transplant well. And, and Blanche would say, and I did, and I have, and I did. So anyway, she said, and they moved out to West Texas, Odessa Midland, and, and that's where she taught school English for a long time. Perfectionists love teaching English grammar. That's an observation. Um, and Charles' alcoholism got worse and worse and worse. 
Kids were affected. Blanche was a Blanche reacted by taking control. And being that she couldn't control Charles, she controlled everything else within West Texas. <laughs> Classrooms, schools, PTA, associations, the Baptist Church Choir, Blanche ran it. Control is the drug in Al-Anon. It, it's their version of heroin, and it's sweet. As long as you're in control, you're fine. Well, Charles reached out for help like Bob reached out for help, like Bill reached out for help. And finally, Charles hooked up with a therapist, an exotic one. And the therapist talked to Charles for a while, then called Blanche. And uh, Mrs. Debenport, this is Dr. So-and-so, um, your husband is an alcoholic, and we need to talk. Now, Blanche was raised as a Southern lady. I'm not a Southerner, and I'm not a lady. And so I've just observed, I've seen Steel Magnolias, so I think I know you all very well. But, you know, you're polite at all costs, and, and, and if you don't like somebody, you're polite but cool. Uh, anyway, when this lady said your husband's an alcoholic, Blanche lost it, and she said, you're out of your mind, and just hung up on her. Very rude. Lady, the doctor called back immediately. It was also a lady doctor. And the doctor said, Blanche, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. And Blanche said, no one knew what I have been through. I told no one. But that, those words at that time connected, and she began to sob. Because what the doctor was showing her, of course, was compassion and respect. And that doesn't happen in alcoholic homes a lot. And Blanche begins her journey. One of the things she said that so impressed me, you have to relearn everything. That new ideas, new associations, new brain patterns, new behaviors. The old idea was God helps those who help themselves. Blanche said that's not true. God helps those who ask. I remember to ask. Another thing she learned was what you don't know can't hurt you. And Blanche said, listen, what I did not know about alcoholism almost killed four people. So Marty Mann, looking around, sees there's a tremendous need for information on alcoholism. And she founds the National Council on Alcoholism. And she, she wrote a, a book, Marty Mann's Primer on Alcoholism, which is still an extremely good book. It's full of useful information, and you give information out, like allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, the first drink gets you drunk, and day at a time. These are lifesavers for people. Lifesavers. When Marty Mann started the NCA, she was bitterly criticized by lots of people within AA. They saw her as being an enemy. She's not an enemy. She was a great friend, and they've helped save lots of lives. Bill and Bob. Bill and Bob connect. They meet the third person. They connect, and they still have so much to learn, so much to learn. Back to a vision for you. Bottom of page 159. A year 
And six months later, these three had succeeded with seven more. A year and six months later, these three had succeeded with seven more. They want to give it away and they haven't learned how to do it yet. It, it's so complicated. Uh, we're so fragile. We're so crazy. There's so much fear. There's so much shame. Alcoholics. Now if you're an alcoholic, well, it's almost status, you know, in some parts of town. When, when the president uh, let us know that he was going to appoint someone to the Supreme Court, I remember, I just sat by my phone all day, knowing it might be me, you know, I'm such a distinguished alcoholic. And then once more, I was not chosen for the Supreme Court. It was a very discouraging day. And I went to my home group meeting that night and talked about my disappointment again of not being named to the Supreme Court. Same thing happens when I hear the Pope is going to name cardinals. I just sit by the phone all day, such a distinguished alcoholic. Um, but there, were re there was fear and there was ignorance and there, were, there was so much. Stuff. If you were an alcoholic in recovery, this was quiet business. It's one of the reasons for anonymity, because of the shame involved. Let me talk for just a few moments about shame. Embarrassment is big for a lot of us. We don't want to be embarrassed. There have been times I have suffered embarrassment, and I hate it. It's not a good feeling. A couple of times in my life, I've been caught in a lie. Something that I constructed cleverly and then it got blown. Humiliating. Humiliating. Embarrassing. Some of us are ashamed of who we are and where we're from. Wrong family, wrong mom, wrong dad, wrong brother, wrong sister. Some families base entire things on honor and, and pride. And in Spain, it's such a big deal. In Asia, saving face is, is such a big deal. It's real strong with us, too, this sense of shame. And for a lot of us, if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic, you can be very ashamed. I think one of the reasons we go to meetings is to deal with some of that shame. It helps us identify with others. Me too. Me too. I've done that. As we do a fourth step, as we, as we do an ongoing tenth step, as we admit our flaws, as we, as we reach out for help, as we try to live a life without secrets, it's because of we don't want to live with the shame and the embarrassment and the guilt. They're probably different. I mean, I know there are books written on this. You know, guilt is about some of my behavior. Shame is about who I am. Embarrassment, it's when someone else notices my guilt or my shame. In Recovery in AA and Al-Anon in Narcotics Anonymous. 
in Naranon, uh, which is the Al-Anon form of the Narcotics Anonymous lovers, you know, the lovers of addicts. We rebuild community and we rebuild family. My sponsor, who's been sober a long time, his last handful of pills were muscle relaxants. Yeah, how embarrassing. Um, well, he inherited a box of pills. He was sober a little bit, but he inherited a box of pills. Big secret. And so he just thought he'd try them to see. And he went by color, the green pills, the blue pills, the... And the last was a muscle relaxants. And we come in isolated, full of shame. And we learn how to live with some self-respect in community. We could use some friendly grandparents. They're available. We can use some friendly parents, they're available. We can use some friendly kids, they're available. If the family of your origins doesn't treat you very well, come and hang out with us. We'll relearn how to do this. Two last points, and then we can take a break because it's 11.30. Well, how's it? Let, let me two points and take some questions because I think pizza's at 12, right? So if not, we'll just, we'll just stretch and, and mope around and be hopeless. Um, the shame and the embarrassment and the guilt. We need to look at that. We need to look at the things that keep us heavy with our own stuff, the burdens we carry. Part of a fourth step is writing down the stuff that bothers us. Some of our shame, some of our guilt, some of our behavior. Bill does it in terms of uh, resentments. And I've got resentments, you know. I... Uh, I get mad a lot. And when the anger gets old, it's resentment. But I get mad a lot. There are things to get mad about. I read three newspapers every day just to keep my, my anger fresh, you know. Um, and I have to watch that. I, I the, you know, where I put my attention is important, and I'm in charge of that. If I listen to certain people, if I pay attention to certain stuff, I know how I'm going to be reacting. And so there are some voices that I'm allergic to. I don't want to live with all of that. I don't want to manufacture any more anger than I already have. But what makes me angry now and what makes me angry in the past, I need to look at that. Write it down. Fears. Stuff that frightens me. Well, fears that fears just, just is. Some of us are afraid of everything. Some of us are afraid of nothing. Prisons are full of people who are afraid of nothing. You know? Little sociopathic behavior there. 
I'm afraid of some stuff, and I want to know what that is, and I want to keep an eye on it because I don't want it to influence me without my knowing about it. Uh, I'm afraid of tornadoes. I'm not afraid of earthquakes. Isn't that interesting? Um, I had never been through a hurricane till I visited Florida, and then I was here uh, in between Katrina and, and Hurricane Francis. I was here. Very or Rita, I guess. Anyway. Um, I was up in a little plane, a two-person plane. I was afraid. And the plane is covered with aluminum, like tinfoil. And if you stick your finger through the wall, you will crash. So I haven't done that twice. Um, big planes don't bother me. Little planes bother me. Um, fear. I'm afraid of gangs of angry people. I'm afraid of angry people. And what I've noticed, the way fear works in me is, is I have a nanosecond of fear and then I get mad. So sometimes I'm angry in voice and behavior because something scared me. And I need to step back and take a look at that. I want to know how that operates. I have anger and I have fear. My suspicion is most of us do. And I really don't trust anybody who tells me they don't have either. I met this, very, this fellow in, out on the West Coast, and he told me that he never had anger and he never had fear. I put my hand over my wallet <laughs> and headed for the door. I just don't trust. I mean, I just don't trust that. I guess that means I'm cynical. Um, when I get angry and when I get afraid, there's stuff I need to do. I ask for help. I talk about it. I do some writing. I ask for help. I talk about it. I do some writing. I don't want to hold on to that stuff because it comes and it goes. So Bill writes about anger stuff, fear stuff, sexual stuff. Sexual stuff can be very embarrassing for a lot of us. Um, the poet Rumi wrote a poem in, in Islam. Um, uh, they believe in the resurrection of, of, of the body, the resurrection of the dead like, like most Christians do. And Rumi writes a poem in the... 13th, 12th century, and it says, on resurrection day, your body testifies against you. Your hand says, I stole things. Your lips say, I spoke falsehood, and I was cruel. Your feet say, I went where I shouldn't. Your genitals say, me too. <laughs> Not bad for the 13th century, huh? Um, now, what I heard in, when I was in priest school, and I, I was very lucky being in, in Berkeley. Uh, uh, I studied there from 74 to 77. I got sober during that time. But in the Graduate Theological Union where I, was, where I learned theology, uh, we had nine different denominations in 12 different schools. 
So every school had its own requirements, but you could fulfill the requirements in all the schools. So you can study at the Lutheran school, the Episcopal school, the Dominican school, the Franciscan school, the Jesuit school, or some of the others. And it was a great way to learn a lot of things. I was, I was pretty happy with that. Um, I just got distracted. I hate it when that happens. Where was I going? Yeah, Berkeley School. Sexual stuff. Oh, in the school. Um, we were taking a class on hearing confessions. You know, how, how do you listen to people? And a lot of times, for those of you who are Catholic, between uh, uh, to protect your anonymity, there's a screen that separates you from the priest who's listening. So uh, all you have to go on as the priest is the voice. So by voice, you need to know how old the person is, male, female, uh, how educated the person is, is the person under a lot of stress. It's all in voice. Uh, visually, it's much easier to, to make a determination. So you have to be exquisitely sensitive. And our teacher, who was a very wise man named Robert Daly, he said, uh, when a lot of people come to confession, the most embarrassing stuff is frequently at the end. So the pattern for most people is this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened, this happened, that happened, pause, and then something sexual. For a lot of people, it's something sexual. Being involved in something, being compromised, doing something stupid. And there are so many chances for stupidity in modern America. So he said, listen for that. And then he said, you know, the only variation on that theme is if there's alcoholism present. And then the pattern goes like this. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. Pause. And sometimes I drink too much, period. That's the shame. That's the shame. Well, in a fourth step, it's important to look at some of that stuff that we find so embarrassing. And then in a fifth step, we share it with another human being. Resentments, fair sexual stuff. Bill had a roving eye, and it made his life chaotic. And the fourth area that Bill writes about for embarrassment and shame is finances. Bill had a lot of worry and stuff around money. There was never enough and he always wanted more. And money can make you crazy. There is at least one 12-step program that I know of that deals with money craziness called Debtors Anonymous. You owe so much credit card debt. You overspend. You spend in blackouts. There's that wonderful TV show where you can get 19 pounds of crap, you know, for only 32.75, and you end up with 16 of them in one week, and I don't remember buying any of them. Well, maybe there's a program for you, you know. How we spend money, what we do with money, we who overspend, we who are misers, money can make us as crazy as anything else. And I don't usually think of myself as a greedy person, but every so often I'm very greedy. It's very embarrassing. I never talk about it. <laughs> Dr. Bob has a different approach. Dr. Bob 
has a different approach, and this is what I'll end with. This is in the AA Big Book in the short story called He Sold Himself Short. And in and the fourth edition, it's on page 263. Dr. Bob is working with the first guy from Chicago who gets sober. You might know this. Chicago drunks are bad drunks. I mean, they're really bad drunks. This guy, it's in the 1930s, and he comes to Akron to get some help, and he hooks up with Dr. Bob. One-on-one, -on -one, Dr. Bob paid you full attention. He's a physician. He's a proctologist. You know. How much more intimate can you get with a physician? On page 263, um, let me see. The day before I was due to go back to Chicago, it was Dr. Bob's afternoon off. He had me to the office, and we spent three or four hours formally going through the six-step program as it was at that time. The six steps were, number one, complete deflation. Two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Three, moral inventory. Four, confession. Five, restitution. Six, continued work with other alcoholics. Six steps. From the Oxford group, from Carl Jung, Bill will take those and come up with 12. You can imagine how that went over. Go to your home group saying, I just came up with 24 steps. <laughs> See how that goes over. Dr. Bob led me through all these steps at the moral inventory. This, this again, dealing with shame and embarrassment and secrets and guilt and at the moral inventory, he brought up several of my bad personality traits or character defects, such as selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill temper, sarcasm, and resentments. I'll repeat the list. I wish there were 12 of them, but it's just a few short. Selfishness, I've got that. Conceit, I've got that. Jealousy, I've got that. Carelessness, I wish I weren't careless. I'm really careless. I lose things, I misplace things. I don't file. I think it's been five years since I filed anything. I have stacks. I think that's disgusting. Don't tell my mom. Intolerance. Oh, yeah. I notice that at airports pretty quickly. It's kind of like driving on a freeway. Intolerance. When you see idiots driving next to you. In airports, I can be highly intolerant. I don't have to know anything about you. I am your judge and your jury, and I loathe you. <laughs> on the flight from uh, San Francisco to Houston, not one empty seat. And I was sitting deeply spiritual and evolved and so advanced. <laughs> and right over here was a mom and a dad and two kids. Young couple, mom and a dad, two kids. One little boy had his thing and he was fine, but the other one yelled for three and a half hours. 
Hard to be as evolved as I am when you're in a situation like that. Um, what I wanted to do was buy the little kid a drink. And I wanted to say, just get, he needs one, one beer and he'll be out and we'll all get along a lot better. And then, of course, I hated mom and dad because, you know, they aren't raising. He was a little kid. It took me a good while to detach enough to let everything be. And, I mean, I don't I can focus on the little kid or not. Al-Anon lets me know I can choose where to put my attention. And I, every so often I found myself hating this little kid. Just because he was being a little kid. And I was a hyperactive little kid. That doesn't make me tolerant. And I was able to breathe and read and breathe and read. And then the little boy threw into my lap a little plastic giraffe. No one saw him throw this in my lap. I want this little plastic giraffe. Would this be theft? Would this be stealing from a child? As you can tell, I have a training in moral theology. And I, I just held it in my hand for a while. And then what I was able to do as grace and time and breathing and grace and time and breathing, towards the end of the flight, I tapped Dad on the shoulder and gave him back the giraffe. I consider that an act of heroic virtue. On my <laughs> heroic virtue. Giving a child back his little toy. So that's how I am. Intolerant. I can be very intolerant of people who look differently than I do. Uh, groups of folks I can just despise. I was raised very racial. And I was very aware of accent and background and ethnic this and ethnic that. And I believed I, only people who looked like me were worth being people. And it's taken me a long time to work through a lot of that nonsense. But I think that's true for many of us. Ill temper. I've got an ill temper. There are times I'm just cranky. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I have to keep an eye on that. Sometimes I'm just cranky. Sarcasm. Oh, my. <laughs> what I've noticed with sarcasm and ridicule is their weapons. And I can use them, and I have used them. When I was in the classroom, I was very good at it. I was a little guy, and a lot of my students were bigger than me. But I was meaner and I could keep them down with my mouth. And I used ridicule and sarcasm well into sobriety because I didn't know what else to do. And what I've, I've noticed in you know, our beloved country is so much of what passes for humor is ridicule and sarcasm. It's mean. And as a sober person, I don't want to be mean. I like humor, irony. Playfulness, being playful with humor, uh, turning some things on their head, being goofy, but that's not mean. The ridicule and the sarcasm is where I don't want to go. I can, and now it makes me ill. I don't like it. Bad aftertaste. And for some people who are supposedly hilarious, 
but they're just mean. I don't find them funny anymore. There are some channels I change. Isn't he hilarious? No, he's mean. Oh, there's a difference? Yes. And if you grew up in my family, you'd know what that difference is. Because we used that all the time. Tout le temps. Selfishness, conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill-temper, sarcasm, and resentments. Letting go of that stuff. The reason we're encouraged to let go of resentments, that in church talk sometimes that's called forgiveness. I don't forgive for your sake. I forgive for mine. I don't want to carry the burden of your crap in my heart and head. I did for years. I thought if I resented enough, I was strong. I remember going to meetings early in sobriety. All I had was resentment. I could tell you who I was by whom I hated. And I thought that was smart and I thought that was powerful. And now I understand it as cancerous. I have to let go of that. And I have to, and this is a conscious choice of recovery for me, human beings, we're so difficult, we disagree on everything. We're cranky. I need, as part of my program, and this is my last point, as part of my program, I need to go out of my way to build bridges, not blow them up. To reach out, to say hello, to treat people with respect, rather than treating people like objects. What, what addicts do, we reverse everything. We who are addicts, we treat things like people and people like things. The booze is the most important part of my life. The dope is the most important part of my life. I sacrifice for the dope. I think about the dope. I show great respect for the dope. People, I treat like objects. I don't want to do that. In recovery, I want to treat people like people and objects like objects. And that thought process went through my head yesterday before I returned that cute little giraffe. I'm sure that little boy wouldn't have missed it. But I would always know that I had stolen it. Oh, let's take a break. It's almost time for pizza. And uh, we come back about 1 o'clock, maybe five minutes after, and we're going to talk a little bit about service and life and a few more things.